All right, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 27 as we continue through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 27, this is uh, still a narrative of David. David is being threatened by Saul. I know, a great shock to you all. Um, he's still running from Saul, but he seems to have found, he seems to have found a way out of this situation. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about David this evening especially as he remembers or doesn't remember the faithfulness of God in his life. This is uh, what Dr. Ralph Davis calls a godless chapter of the Bible. Yahweh is not mentioned in this chapter of the Bible, like in the book of Esther. You just see God using providence to accomplish his purposes. But this is 1 Samuel 27. I'm going to read through... 28, 1 and 2. Please remain seated, but this is God's inspired word for you tonight. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. <coughs> and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was one year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizorite, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were inhabitants of the land from old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither male, man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels and garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jerahimalites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to the people, his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So we see here David doing something that seems rather sketchy. He's going to the enemies of Israel for safety. This would be akin to um, uh, us going to Russia for safety. Well, actually, people have tried to do that. It doesn't work. 
you're not more safe with your enemies. But David, for a year and four months, actually seems to be resting. Saul is no longer chasing him. He's able to take care of his people. It seems like it's working out well for him. So we're going to go through uh, this particular passage, verse by verse, and see if there's anything that we can learn from David's decision to do what he's doing here. You have to understand, I think, first of all, we're not trying to throw stones at David at all. We're not going to armchair quarterback him to the extent that we just point out everything that we see in this chapter that's negative uh, because he is under great pressure. He's got 600 men with him. Their families are with him. This is a large group of people pursued by Saul constantly, and Saul is not messing around. He's bringing a large army to destroy them. So he's feeling pressure. He's been betrayed by Saul. He's been betrayed by his own people. If you remember, the Ziphites have betrayed him twice to Saul. He feels unsafe in his own land. So in verse 1, he says, There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Otherwise, he'll be perishing or he'll be swept away in the Hebrew. So he flies to the historic enemies of Israel. And he thought that in Philistia, Saul would leave him alone. And he's right. As soon as Saul found out that he was in Gath, he left him alone. David took 600 men and they went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, this isn't the first time. If you remember in 1 Samuel 21, David went to Achish as well. And the men of Gath wanted to kill David. They saw him and they said, we know this guy. This is the one who killed Goliath. Achish, we got we to gotta kill him now. And he had to pretend to be crazy. He acted like he was a, a nutcase. And they let him go. Achish said, don't I have enough crazy men in my court? And they let him go. Interestingly, when Solomon becomes king, so after 40 years of David's reign, Solomon becomes king, and right before David died, he said to Solomon, don't forget the people who have abused me. I promise not to kill them. Shimea is one of them. Don't forget them, and when I die, make sure that they receive justice. So David died, and Shimea's one of the men who had abused David when he was fleeing from Absalom. And anyway, Solomon brought him to Jerusalem and said, you have to stay in Jerusalem. Shimei said, this is better than I deserve. I'll stay in Jerusalem. And Solomon said, if you ever leave, you'll die. Well, in the third year of Solomon, Shimei's servants escaped to Gath. They escaped to Achish, the same exact king. This king Achish, he, he reigned in Gath for over 40 years, probably more like 50 years. He's been in Gath a long time. And it seems to be a place where people go when they feel afraid. Nonetheless, this is where David goes for the second time. We're not told why he thought this was a good idea. We're not told if he inquired of the Lord. We're not told anything about what he's thinking. We're simply told the facts of what happened. So the author is not affirming anything that David did. The author is not um, condemning anything that David did either. You'll see later he talks about how David is wiping out whole cities, men and women. It's just reporting the facts. That's all we have in this chapter. The author is reporting the facts of what's happening. 
And he doesn't mention God at all. So what are we to make of this? Well, first of all, in verses 3 and 4, we see that David's plan worked. In so much as Saul stopped chasing him. Verse 4 says, when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Maybe he had rest for the first time in a few years. Uh, Maybe sleeping in a bed in Ziklag was better than sleeping in a cave in En Gedi. It seems like he has more freedom of action. Verses 5 through 7, he's given the town of Ziklag by King Achish, and they stay there 16 months. 16 months. That's a long time to be in enemy territory. We don't know what's going on during this time exactly, except that he's deceiving Achish and he's making raids on his enemies. So what I'd like us to think about is that David is moving out seemingly on his own. From what we can tell, he's not inquiring of the Lord. He has a priest who's following him. Uh, with the Urim and the Thummim, but he's not inquiring of the Lord that we're told. We're not given any insight into his decision to move to the Philistines, except that it made sense to David. He thought he was going to be wiped out. So is there anything we could use to evaluate David's decision from what we've already studied in 1 Samuel? Again, not to cast stones at David, but he's under great pressure. But if you look at what has come before in his life, it's hard not to realize that God has sustained David through thick and thin in everywhere he's gone. So this must give him great confidence. Great confidence even to go to the Philistines. No matter what he does, no matter where he goes, he's confident that his Lord will be faithful to him. God has always upheld his promises to David in everything. So whether or not David was trusting in the Lord with all his heart when he went to the Philistines, or whether or not he's leaning on his own understanding when he went to the Philistines, we just don't know. But what we do know is that God did not waste this 16 months. This wasn't a a 16 months of wasted effort. Yes, Saul stopped chasing him. Was it morally right to go to the enemies of God's people? We don't know that either. But we know that God gave David some time of rest here. What we don't want to fall into the trap of, though, is what I would call pragmatism. It's the idea that if something works, well, it must be right. Um, You can find a lot of pragmatic things that are done today that are immoral, that are just wrong. I can save a whole lot more money if I don't tithe or pay my taxes. Well, it's good to save, but it's immoral not to tithe or pay taxes. Or, I'll never, have a, I'll never have a fight with my wife if I don't see her, so I'm just going to stay away for a long time, and I won't talk to her about anything important. So, that's very pragmatic. You'll never have any arguments with your wife, but you're not having a relationship with her. It's immoral. Or, in, even in ministry, don't ever preach about sin or hell. Because that will make people uncomfortable and they won't come back. So you want to fill the church. And the way to do that is to preach nice things, things that people want to hear. Well, that's immoral. So pragmatism is not what we would ever desire in our lives or in our churches. If, if pragmatism, if just what works 
is your measure of goodness, then you're going to end up doing horrible things. Adolf Hitler was a pragmatist. Stalin was a pragmatist. They did what they had to to stay in power, and it worked. So pragmatism is wrong. I don't think David is being pragmatic. I think David is just trying to survive. I think he's running for his life, and he's feeling the weight of the pressure. For whatever reason, he knew in this moment that Achish would accept him and protect him. So he goes there. But in God's kingdom, we don't do just what works. Uh, God's ways are foolish to the world. How does, how does God grow his kingdom? He uses weak people like us to shine brightly in a dark world. He uses uh, jars of clay or earthen vessels to preach a message about a, a dead man who came back to life. That's how God grows his kingdom. It's foolishness to the world. It's not the way the world would do things at all. But we do what's right because it's right and it's scriptural. So the second way I'd like to encourage you, when you're faced with a hopeless or difficult situation, uh, remember the truth about what God has done. So rather than being pragmatic and thinking through, well, what will get me out of this as quickly as possible, take time to think about what God has done and talk to God about his promises. David does this in Psalm 42. Actually, this is the Psalms of Korah, the sons of Korah. Psalm 42, you can see the psalmist calling to themselves. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Talking to yourself. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. I always find it pleasing to remember that the word salvation in Hebrew is often just Yeshua, my Yeshua and my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Often, We don't just need to read the Word of God when we feel downcast. We need to tell ourselves what to do. Remember, soul. Remember God's promises. Remember all that He's done. We read Psalm 103 earlier as well. It's the same message. This is a Psalm of David, and he's talking to his own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103 is what David would preach to his own soul when he felt downcast, when he felt destroyed or near despair. He would remember that God doesn't deal with him according to his sins or repay him according to his iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So he remembers the great great forgiveness we have in Christ. 
Christ's righteousness like a shield around us, a weapon in the right and the left hand. But then he also remembers the love of God. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So God knows everything because he knows everything. But he also experienced dust because he became dust like us. He remembers in his memory that we are dust. He remembers that our days are like grass, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You see, if we, like David, tell our souls when we feel despair, when we feel tribulation, when we, when we feel hardship, if we tell our souls, bless the Lord, O my soul, don't forget all that God has done for you. Bless the Lord, soul. And you make your soul remember all that he's done. You cannot stay in that place of despair for long. You have to, you have to look at life through the correct lens. The lens of Christ and his righteousness and his promises. I love Billy Graham's quote. He said, it's hard to be optimistic if you have a misty optic. If you have on the wrong glasses, you're not going to ever see life clearly. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Hopefully David was doing this. We don't know. How did David make this decision? Well, we'll have to ask him when we see him. We really don't know. How should we think about decisions like this? When you feel like you're out of options, maybe you're thinking of finding a new job or leaving your old job or going to a new school or even buying a new car or something that's more than just, well, you could do it anytime you have a decision to make. How do we make decisions like that? A decision like David made to move to a new place. So there's so much confusion uh, about making decisions like this. I never hesitate to talk about it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote a, a book I think that's very helpful called Just Do Something. There's also a book called Sanctified Reason um, that we have in the library. A short little pamphlet, really. But when it comes to making decisions... It's not a mystical experience. Well, should I marry this person or not? Well, if I see a sunset tomorrow with one cloud in the sky, I'll know that the answer is yes. You know, it's not, that's not how we make decisions, although some people probably do. Um, or you flip the Bible open to a passage. Should I do this or should I not? What's the first verse, Mike? I'm like a moth to Ephraim. Oh, I guess I shouldn't do that. No, that's not how we make decisions. That's actually what the verse said, by the way. I am a moth to Ephraim. So people actually think about decisions in that flippant of a manner. Well, we have something much, much better. We know that our minds are renewed daily by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit lives in us. So that's the idea of sanctified reasoning. As we fix our eyes on Jesus through, as revealed in His Word, 
we begin thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, our minds begin thinking like God does. As you immerse yourself in the word of God, you begin to become like God and think like God as much as we're able in this life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our reasoning becomes better. So how does this work out in actual life and purpose? Um, Let's say I'm deciding whether or not to get another seminary degree. Well, first I need to ask myself, is this a moral decision or not? If it's an immoral decision, immoral, it's wrong, uh, then you just don't do it. You know that's not God's will for you. Like if you're married and you're wondering if you should divorce your wife and marry someone else, the answer is no. The Bible's clear. You're married. Stay married to the person you're married to. Or if you're wondering if you should get a full-time drug-selling job, of course not. That's illegal. You can't do illegal things, right? So immoral decisions are right off the bat cut. You don't do them. But for the vast majority of our decisions, they're not moral decisions, although that is a good cut to make. When you're making a decision, ask yourself, is this right or wrong? And if it's wrong, just don't. Decision is made. But for the vast majority of the the decisions you make that aren't immoral, like David going to live in Gath, is that right or wrong? may not be a moral decision. It may just be a place to live. Well, how do you know what to do? Well, we read the scriptures and we study and we try to put as much word of God into our minds as possible. We write down a list of pros and cons. We pray that God gives us great wisdom. We talk to godly men and women around us who have lived life longer than us, who have wisdom and can speak into our lives. And then we pray. And then when we have to make a decision, we make the very best decision after all that prayer and all that study and all that counsel, you make a decision. That's how you determine the will of God in your life because you have freedom in those kinds of events. You have freedom in those kinds of things. There's not a way that you're going to mess that up. It's not like, "Uh uh-oh, I moved and I wasn't supposed to. Actually, you have freedom to move and God will help you in your move. If you've prayed and you've, you've studied and you've sought counsel and you've studied God's word and you want to move, then move. I think this might have been the kind of decision David made. He looked at his options. He said, I think this is a good option, talked about it with a few of his advisors, and they went for it, and God blessed it. If you want to talk about making decisions, I'd love to talk to you more or talk to one of the older men or women in the congregation who have made lots of decisions. There's lots of wisdom there. All right, after this, We rely primarily, as David probably is right now, on God's word and his promises. I think we should also not discount the power of the word of God in a difficult situation. Even a couple verses. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but the Holy Spirit can use maybe one verse even to to lift up your soul when you're feeling down or depressed or, or anxious about something. Even one verse... The Holy Spirit can remind you of God's promises and His character, and it can lift you up. This happened to Charles Spurgeon in 1854. It was his very first year of ministry. He was in his 20s, and there was a cholera epidemic just sweeping over London. And people were dying 
all the time. And he was constantly at people's houses, comforting the sick, or he was doing the funerals of the people who had passed away. This went on for months. He was tired, and he was wondering if he should even stay in the city. And as he was walking back to the church, he passed by a store, uh, a, a butcher, and in the window was hanging Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10, just handwritten. The butcher had written it and just hung it in the window. And it said, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And Spurgeon wrote, Immediately the Holy Spirit said, This is true. And he was encouraged. And he continued on serving his community because the Holy Spirit impressed that word upon his heart. The truth of God's care on his heart. So if you're discouraged about something that's coming up, about a decision you must make, comfort yourself in the Word of God. So we see a a part of David 2 in verses 8 through 12 that's a little disturbing to me, probably to you as well. He's raiding these Canaanite cities, and he's killing all the people in each raid and keeping the spoil for himself. So there's a part of you that probably says, yeah, but... The Israelites, when they came into the land, were supposed to destroy those people completely anyway. So David's maybe mopping up what they had left. Well, if God had told him to do that in so many words, then yes, I guess I can see that point. But what the author seems to be doing is comparing David with someone else who destroyed the men and the women, but kept the spoil. David's acting a little bit like Saul. And he's lying to Achish about it. He's deceiving Achish and saying, well, I raided Judah. I raided the Israelites when actually he's raiding all of the Israelites' enemies. Why is he doing this? We're not told. We don't know if God is guiding him in this. But it seems odd that men and women are all killed with no survivors and they're saving the spoil. So if you remember when uh, Joshua entered the land, they were to wipe out everything. When God instructed, through Elijah instructed Saul to destroy um, their enemies, they were to wipe out everything, not leave anything survival. But Saul did not do that. He wiped out the men and the women and he kept the spoil. This is what David is doing as well. So it seems like this is not something God is interested in. So why? Why is the author of 1 Samuel, after building David up as this man of faith, why does he continue to show us David's kind of more questionable side? Well, I think it might be partly that we're all in First Samuel meant to grow to love David, but we're also all meant to remember that David is just a man. He's a man who's going to fail, and we're going to learn throughout the rest of First and Second Samuel that he's failing often. He's a man after God's own heart. We're not trying to take, again, cheap shots at David. He's got much on his plate, and he suffered much at the hands of Saul. But he's a man after God's own heart. He's not the Messiah, though. He's not the perfect one. He's not David's greater son. 
So, let's consider, as we close, a few ways that David's greater son, Jesus, exceeded David in character. David, in verse 1, said in his heart, I need to go to the Philistines. So we get to see David's. This is the one time we, we see David's heart, and his heart is, I can't stay in my own land. I need to go to the Philistines. It seems like he was somewhat conflicted for him to tell us of this kind of very um, traumatic decision uh, to go to Israel's enemies. But Christ's heart was always aligned with his father's heart. So David has gone everywhere. Remember, he went first to the temple or to the tabernacle, and then he went to uh, his best friend's house. And then he, he fled to a cave. And then he went to, to the Philistines. And then he went to Engedi. He's just all over. He's just looking for someplace safe. There doesn't seem to be a constant source or strategy in what he's doing. Christ's heart was always aligned with the Father's and was steadfast. But was Christ under as much pressure as David? Absolutely, and, and much more. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. He said, I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is in John 4 and in John 6. In John 14, He says, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing His work. So you see, there's a steadying effect of Christ's work. It's, it's not so random. His life is set on a course. As we discussed this morning, he has endurance because his life is focused on the Father's will. This should be our own focus as well. We should live life with a pure motive, a single-minded devotion to serve Jesus Christ as he's revealed in his word. Secondly, I think whereas we see David deceiving Achish, Jesus was never deceptive to anyone. And his life was just as much at stake. And he had many people following him as well. But Jesus had perfect moral courage. In John chapter 8, he's talking to the Pharisees who want to kill him and who actually have the power to kill him. He said, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason that why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus is talking to these prideful people, and he just tells them the truth. Your father is the devil, and from the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning, he's been deceiving people, and he's still deceiving people. 
Wonder what would have happened if David had just told Achish, hey, I'm running from Saul. I'm not going to attack the Israelites. I'm going to make raids up here. I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be. Did he have to deceive? I don't know. Well, obviously not. You never have to deceive anyone. Um, But Jesus certainly did not ever deceive anybody. And finally, we see David, it seems like he's killing men and women to protect himself. He doesn't want word to get back to Achish what he's doing, so he kills them all. It doesn't seem to be an honorable reason to be killing people to protect his own life or to protect his his own life in Ziklag. But Jesus, he walked straight toward Jerusalem, straight toward persecution and death, He was faithful to his charge to do the will of his father. Isaiah 53, of course, says he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. So the the greater son of David, Jesus, he certainly is worthy of our worship. David certainly had a heart after God, and we can admire many things about King David. But the root of David, he's the one that we worship, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. David lets us down in the Scriptures. David does things we don't like in the Scriptures, but Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will always do the right thing. And Jesus really is the only one you can trust. I was talking to a pastor friend few months ago, and he doesn't have any confidants in his church, nobody he can talk to. And I said, well, tell me who you talk to and who, who, do, you, who do you relate your problems to and who, who do you have praying with you? Who do you have to go to in church? And he just said, Jesus. And at first I thought, well, that's really hard, but that's actually probably the best answer you could ever have. Yes, you need other people too, but Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Uh, So turn your hearts to Jesus as well. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we're grateful that you've given us the example of David. We're thankful for the example of the greater David, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that you would help us when we feel in hopeless situations, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, when we feel pressured to make difficult decisions, that we would weigh our options and prayerfully consider what must be done and that you would guide us to make wise decisions. Lord, and even if we make bad decisions, we pray that you would use them for your glory as you seem to do in David's case that it would all be for your glory and your honor. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we have in it. In Jesus' name, amen.